This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family, I want to ask you a, a question um, that hopefully you can answer pretty, pretty easily. What are the three relationships for which we have been created? What are those things when we have, we have talked several times about creation and what God describes, how God describes what it was that he created in Genesis? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And we see him creating the animals. We see him creating all of things in nature as well as humankind. And we've highlighted those three relationships. So I know it's seemingly rhetorical, but let me repeat them again. God has created us for a relationship with him. He's created us for relationship with each other. And he's created us for relationship to the earth, relationship to creation. Now, those first two relationships we likely can identify. We likely would agree, hey, we need good relationship with God. And we need good relationship with one another. And there's a lot in that. We've preached through that for the last seven years about what those relationships should look like and how often our sin nature has marred and damaged and polluted and infected uh, those relationships. And as a throw-in, we may, very rarely do most churches even do that, but as a throw-in, we'll throw in and say, and also our relationship to creation. But have you really considered what that relationship really means? If I'm honest, I, for most of my Christian life, have not thought through what it means to have a right relationship to creation. I've not thought through what it means to be a a responsible steward of creation. And largely, it's, it's, and some, many have argued that it's been that very false understanding of what our role is with creation that has led to our abuse of creation, which in many ways causes abuses of the other relationships, causes real injustice to our neighbor. And so we want to walk into that. What does it mean? A better question is, does God care for the environment? Because if God cares for the environment, we should care for the environment. Now, depending on your church background, you may have been inclined to say something I heard a lot growing up, and I'm sure you probably have too. And that is when people begin to bring up the importance of caring for creation, creation care, environmental stewardship, anything pertaining to the environment, we might be inclined to shut that off and respond with a very popular refrain that says, Everything's going to burn up anyway, so why should I care? Why should that matter to me? I know what's happening in the here and now. Let me focus on that. And everything else will work itself out. Because God clearly doesn't seem to care about it in the same way. Everything's going to burn up. God's going to do something new. Why should I care about it here? Which leads us to the question, does God call us then to care for creation? Does he call us to care for the environment. We, as we're going to see here, must protect God's creation 
by taking care of the earth and taking care of its inhabitants. This is the will of God, our creator. So with that, let me just read a quick passage of scripture that you have probably read. We have uh, quoted before and we haven't, we spent some time in it in the past, but I'd like for us to spend more time in it now because I think we need to have a deeper, more robust view of this relationship into which we have been called from the day we were created. That comes from Genesis 2, verse 15. If you remember in the Genesis 2 account of creation, there seems to be a different focus on the order. It's, It's shown in the order in which creation is described when you compare that to Genesis chapter 1. And so in chapter 2, you see this order that's given and you see God creating the various aspects of creation. And then you get down to Genesis 2, 15. Here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. That's it. To work it and to watch over it. This part of the this mandate that God gives is often left out. Because usually what we quote when we think about what God has called mankind to do and and, uh, men and women to do in in caring for creation or uh, relating to creation, we've often brought up er the earlier passage where it talks about be fruitful, multiply and have dominion over the earth. Right. And so when we just leave that in a vacuum and let let us kind of be the ones that define what dominion is, we start to assume that means that creation exists for us. And if if creation exists for us, then dominion must mean using, abusing, exploiting for our own efforts, for our own enjoyment, for our own benefit, regardless of the negative impacts that may be had. If creation exists for you, if creation exists for me, then I can do any and all things that I find that I deem necessary in order to build up self. But what if creation doesn't exist for you? What if creation exists for God? And in creation, in that truth, if creation exists for God, then he entrusts creation to human beings as as folks who are meant to steward creation, not to own creation. Does creation belong to us? Well, I think remember in the Psalms, what does the Psalm, what, what do the Psalms say? The earth is whose? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the fullness thereof. So if it's God's, then that means anything we have is almost on loan to us as a caretaker, as a steward, which means I only do with it what it, whatever, whatever it is I use these things for should match the concerns and the desires of the owner. So no. Creation doesn't actually exist for us. And that's really important. We don't even have time to go into this in in great depth, but consider what happens if you think creation exists for you or to be more broad, creation exists for human beings, right? Human beings, if we see human beings as as, uh, the most important beings on the planet, then then it turns into, well, who gets to be considered a human being? Which beings get to be considered a human being? And so then injustice becomes inevitable because now it's these resources are always limited. And so if I want to have more access to those resources, I then have to justify hoarding more of those resources by considering those who don't have it as less than. 
You see, if you think that creation exists for you, you will look for excuses to hoard resources and not consider those who don't have. But even beyond that, you will never, there's even a bigger point here. You will never get to a place where you think that just taking care of creation, responsibly stewarding creation is actually worshiping God. You won't see it that way. And we need to. And I think the scriptures show us one of the things this scripture, and we'll look at a few more. The Bible is not silent when it comes to creation care. The Bible isn't silent when it comes to the responsibility of human beings with regard to creation. And there's no exception. As we just saw this Old Testament foundation, there's an old and we'll look at some New Testament as well. But this Old Testament foundation that shows just how important creation is. Look back at those words again. In verse 15, Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Now, there's two Hebrew words here that we have to understand in order to really understand what it means. I believe this gives us the definition of what dominion should mean. So we don't have to make up uh, examples of dominion. We don't have to think through exploitative versions of dominion. Much of church history has, is replete with examples of dominion being used in those ways. It's actually been very false because dominion has never, should never have meant ways in which to enrich ourselves at the expense of creation and others that have been, that exist in creation. That is never, that should have never meant or been what dominion means. But it does. That's what we often, how we take it. But this verse actually qualifies what dominion should mean. To work it and to watch over it. Some versions say, uh, if the King James says, to till it, T-I-L-L, to till it and to guard it. In other words, we have to really kind of think through something that's that this there's a phrase that we use to describe this part of God's command. It's known as the cultural mandate, the cultural mandate. What what mandate does God give to human beings? Remember, he doesn't give it to us because we're the most important, but he does give it to us because we are the most responsible. If you think through all of the impacts that every other creature on the earth has, all these things that have created, right? They reflect the, gl the glory of God. All of creation reflects the glory of God. And so you've got all these different creatures that are there and they have their own impacts on the earth. Human beings most certainly have the greatest impact on the earth. And so since we have the greatest impact and the greatest potential impact, we have the greatest responsibility to be guardians and to be gardeners. That's our, that's our job. And it's not rooted in just how great we are. It's rooted in the capacity we have for both good and for real horrific evil in the earth. So we've got a responsibility to care because of how easily we can uh, mishandle and actually abuse creation. So let's look at that first word, that, that word that says to work it. That's a very hard word to translate into English. Because in the Hebrew, this word is the root word of this is the word avad, it's spelled A-B-A-D, but it's it's pronounced avad. It's this idea of it actually means a few things. It means work. It means till. It means worship and it means service. And it's used in different ways throughout the scriptures. You see this word used over 200 times throughout the Old Testament. And it's used in, in a few different ways. In one case, 
The word is used uh, as, as, a, in, in the, as a way of offering an act of worship to God in order to accomplish certain services of adoration. In other words, to steward creation and to steward it well is a sign of gratefulness and adoration for what God has created. There's a sense in which God calls Adam and Eve and, and by virtue us to care for creation as a function of our worship. You see, again, if this doesn't belong to me, but it belongs to you and you've entrusted it to me, then I want to keep it as well as I found it, if not make it better. As a, as a function of genuine appreciation and adoration and worship. Anything you worship, you adore. Anything you worship, you protect. And so if you're like, Lord, I worship you. You have created me in your image and you have called me to take your stuff and protect it and work it here. This word, uh, avad, this word that means to, to till or to serve or to worship. So in the second case of this word, it relates to the manual labor of humans to meet their own needs or the needs of other image bearers. Again, that's that serve component. So you've got the appreciation, the adoration. There's also this service thing that all ties together. I'm working and I'm tilling this ground. That's the picture it gives almost symbolically. Everything we're doing is a function of tilling, taking raw natural resources and tilling and working it. First as a function of adoration and appreciation for God's creation. And then also as a function of service, I'm serving God in my work and I'm serving fellow image bearers in my work. And I am frankly serving creations, serving what God has created in order to protect it. And this, this has also been used, that this word has been used as a way to describe service uh, to kings, that you'll see that word used sometimes when people are serving a king, they would use that word avad or, or avodah, which is kind of the, the word that's used here, a function of service. So, so what does this ultimately mean when we understand that word, that we were created first to till, to work, to serve, to worship? It really means humans were not created without a purpose. We were created with an actual purpose. We weren't created to just do nothing and just wait for things to kind of float our way and then determine what we ought to do. Work has always been a necessary part of human nature. It's always been a necessary part. And think about why. What does work do when you're tilling, when you're uh, in the middle of working something, you're in the middle of taking these natural resources or think about non-gardening examples when you're having to get into the mess of a thing and try to bring order out of it. You know what happens, even out of necessity, when things need to be done just because they need to be done? Throughout history, what work has created, work has created, uh, it's, de it's developed intelligence. It has developed ingenuity. It's developed forces of energy, forces of our very will. So, so that means that at our from the beginning of creation, we were first called to work because it is the condition that is necessary for all development. Things don't change if we don't work. Things don't get better if we don't work. And humans, we work, we continue the work of God through our labor because God wants human beings to flourish. That's why Paul says things like, if a person doesn't work, they don't eat. 
because ultimately work is meant, is supposed to be done in order for image bearers to be able to flourish. Work is supposed to be done not even just for humans. Work is supposed to be done for creation to flourish. That's actually why work exists. There's another thing we've got to understand here. Work then has never been a function of the curse. Work has never been a consequence of what's described as the fall in Genesis. That's never been the, the, the why work exists. You know, we've heard, I've quoted this before, but you've heard this song from the 80s, everybody's working for the weekend. We've heard that because the idea is work is so frustrating, work is so hard. I can't wait until I don't have to work anymore. I can't wait until I can retire. Or I don't have to work anymore. There's this assumption that work itself is some sort of consequence, that work itself is something God never intended. But y'all, work was never a curse. Work is never a consequence. It never was meant to be. Work is a divine institution. Tilling and working, it comes from God because God worked and God continues to work. So this term, Avad, when you understand it as service to others and at a service to offer, it'll take us back to our actual responsibility, the responsibility of worshiping God. And what is true worship truly? True worship consists of putting oneself in the service of others, in the service of God and the service of others, which makes that therefore good. So when you think about tilling the soil, this word that's used that describes tilling soil, it means basically to obey the will of God. One commentator puts it this way. There is a close analogy between tilling worship, and culture. Putting the mission to good use results necessarily in the service offered to God for God's glory and for God's honor and for the well-being and integrity of all creatures, asking God for bread while at the same time working to obtain it. Now, this takes us to the second portion of this command, this cultural mandate. Okay, till, work, work in such a way where it is service, where it is worship, where we uh, realize that this land, this work, whatever it is, doesn't belong to us. Regardless of what's been written on human title deeds, this land, this, this creation doesn't belong to us, belongs to God. So we work it, we till it, we worship and serve with it. But then there's the second piece, keep it or guard it. That's this Hebrew word shamar, it's a verb. And this Hebrew verb means to keep, to survey, to watch over, to protect, to conserve, to hold on to, to conserve the memory, to observe, to notice, to hold. Now, this verb is used over 120 times throughout the Old Testament. Just the Pentateuch alone, the first five books of the Old Testament, you see over 120 times that word is used. You see it over 125 times in the prophets used, and you see it over 165 times used everywhere else throughout Scripture. But here in Genesis 2.15, this passage, in this passage, that word shamar, it takes on the sense of to survey, to preserve, to care for. And from this perspective, the task of human beings is to protect the garden from an enemy of a completely different nature. An enemy who, who aspi aspires to become its master and it will appear without delay. So this task, 
that's given to the first human beings is given with regard to the to to this idea that uh, God foresees the task of humanity with regard to the earth. You know, do you think about this for a minute? Sin hasn't even entered yet. And God still warns them and says, you need to ensure that you're working this and that you're protecting this, that you're guarding this. So that means that he's already seeing out ahead. I know that the 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 possibility or the propensity, he knows sin is coming, the propensity to be able to abuse and destroy is already there. So on the front end, I'm telling you, work this and keep this. That word shamar, you see being used to refer uh, not only to gardeners, you see that word being used to refer to shepherds watching over their flock as it does, the same way that it uh, refers to a farmer who tends a garden. It's the same thing, this idea that we're supposed to be watching over God has made human beings responsible to guard, to watch. And this, this mission that's been given to us by God, it's not accomplished through exploiting, through abusing, through misusing and destroying all of creation, flora and fauna. That's, that's not how we care for creation. God has cared for that and told us to care for that from the beginning. No, the opposite is actually true. The business of mankind, our job should not be just about manipulating and deforming things just for our own good pleasure in order to enrich ourselves. But it actually should be about uh, administering uh, a, a, a function or administering things in a way that is determined by God, not by us. It follows that humans must behave with other members of creation taking into account the characteristics that God has given each by God. We have to care for all of creation and steward it in a very responsible way. So, so we have been, for whatever reason, for reasons we can probably identify, God has said for human beings, we are meant to be the guardians. We are meant to be the administrator of these things, but we are not to be the owners. We are to be the stewards. But we are not to be the owners because the world is God's. It's his creation. It's not our creation. We are managers of creation, but it still remains his property. So creation must be managed according to God's divine justice and not according to human desire for power, human desire for land, human desire for privilege and influence. And I say that because throughout the history of humankind, especially since if you look back through maybe beginning around the Industrial Revolution, we have seen, we have witnessed creation being incredibly damaged on such a large scale that it cannot leave those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus indifferent. We can't say we follow God and love God and be indifferent to the damage to creation because the survival of humanity today and generations to come depends on what we do or what we don't do. I know this sounds like, oh, I didn't, I didn't expect to get some big environmental talk. That's for other stuff. That's for niche people. They're, that's a niche that people might be a part of. It's a good suggestion. If you want to be involved in that, go for it. But that's not really the, the, the huge implication of, of gospel work. That's not an implication of kingdom work. Yes, it is. God began creation with it. God created things and then said, hey, care for creation. Make sure you work in creation and then protect and guard it. So call it what you want, label it what you want. God began, he began creation 
as an environmentalist, if you really want to be honest. He started it that way, and our heart should be there too. Now, the Old Testament isn't the only place where we see uh, this call, where we see this uh, manifested in kingdom work. Several New Testament passages speak about this cosmic dimension of the gospel. And I'm just going to look at two places. Two places uh, where Paul spends time in his letters to, some, to a couple of churches describing exactly what the role of the church is in dealing with creation. And one of the places, one of the first places I'm going to look at is in Colossians. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23, listen to how Paul, how Paul describes our impact on creation, our role on creation, the job we have to responsibly steward creation and the stakes, how high the stakes are if and when we don't. Look at chapter 1, verse 15 in Colossians. He's talking about Christ. And he's talking about the importance of who Christ is and the importance of why we need to understand him this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself. Everything, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now, there's a lot in that, and we can't, we can't walk through all of the, the, the parts there. But there is something really important that we, we need to see in that passage. And the first thing we need to see is that, that we know that that passage clearly affirms that in Christ, everything exists because all things have been created through him and for him. So that's all of creation. Everything that Adam and Eve, that mankind was told to care for, to work, and to keep, that was created through and for Christ. So that, that immediately shows us that relationship that exists between Christ and creation. The very Christ on the cross has a very unique relationship to creation. Christ, he's the one in whom all things are reconciled. And yet there's a rediscovery of harmony there. Paul is declaring that the beneficiaries of this rediscovered harmony are not just humans. It's everything. Think about that. Jesus reconciles all things in the earth and the things that are in the heavens. That's everything. Anything that has been broken, anything in creation that does not function the way that it should because something has gone awry, Jesus is reconciling all of it. So what that tells you is Jesus is not just reconciling broken people. He's reconciling all of broken creation. 
That includes broken relationships. That includes broken systems. That includes includes the, the, the dysfunctional way that just creation works. That's a very established principle for both the past, the present, and the future. Now let's dig into that a minute. The brokenness of creation. Wait a minute, why would Jesus care about the brokenness of creation? I thought Jesus cares. When I think about brokenness, I thought it's just talking about my individual sin stuff, my the things that I've done that maybe has called uh, the brokenness between my relationship with God or the brokenness in my relationship with other people. Doesn't it end there? I, I thought that's what relationship is about. Well, if everything is about you, that is where you'll stop. If everything is about me, that is where I'll stop. I want to make sure my relationship with God is right. I want to make sure that my relationship to others is right. All very important. We fail miserably at doing that well, but we forget that there is, if it's, if this is not about us ultimately, and then we have to remember creation is not ultimately about us either, or, or is ultimately for us either, then I have to go, well, what about our relationship to creation? Has that been broken? And does Jesus care about it? If creation was, cre if was created for him and through him and by him, then he is likely not happy with what has occurred in creation. Can we see that in scripture? Yeah, we can. Take, take a look at Romans 8. Romans 8 spends some time really getting into the implications that exist when creation is broken. Romans 8, starting at verse 18. Hear Paul, hear Paul's words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Hear what he says about creation. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit of, uh, as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Think about this. This is not usually when we think about the groaning and the longing for Jesus, the longing for his return, the longing for reconciliation. We almost exclusively think of it in terms of the brokenness in our lives and the brokenness in our bodies. And we've got sickness and we've got ailments and things don't function in our bodies the way that they did or the way that they should have. And so we are longing for the time where Jesus comes to make things new. But the things that we're talking about are often our stuff. And we skip that first part that Paul, just, that Paul just described. Paul is basically saying, and God therefore is telling us, it's not just you that's longing for reconciliation. Creation is longing for reconciliation. God isn't wasting anything. It's not just us. God's not wasting his stuff. God's not wasting what he created because it exists for him. And so there is, now there's another thing. Why then? Is creation moaning and groaning? What happened to creation? 
This is how you know our responsibility is here. A lot of people love to malign those who care about environmental justice because they're like, we think that the problem with those who care about environmental justice, they are putting the blame on human beings. They have such a low view of humanity that they are blaming humans. And that is such a horrible agenda because of all the thing, all the ways in which they're talking about humans. That is incorrect, wrong. It has a lower view of humans than God does. But that just isn't true. God is being very, he's giving you his view of human's role in what has happened to creation and what has happened to the, uh, to the environment. Our effect, our sin has affected creation so much that creation is longing to be rescued. Creation didn't do that to itself. And let me, let me just maybe even dig into that a little bit because I need to even be careful in how we use this word creation and the environment and nature. Because many times we will talk about humans or mankind and we'll say things. We even have plot devices, man versus nature. You know what the implication therein, the, the, the implication is there? The implication is that man exists separate from nature, but man is a part of nature. Man is a part of nature. We are not separate from it. Now, we have a different relationship to the things that exist in creation, but we are still a part of it. You don't believe me? Watch any human being that fails to live, that begin, that dies, that loses its breath. And you know what its body does? Goes back to creation. Joins in with the rest of creation. Becomes a part of the soil. Begins to be a part of pushing up other vegetation. The bottom line is, whether you want to believe it or not, you and I are as much a part of creation as any other creature that we may see as non-sentient or what have you. Any other creature, any other flower, any other tree, any other animal, any other insect, we are just as much a part of creation as they are. And they are as much a part of creation as we are. So we are not removed from creation. It almost makes it seem like we think we are above creation. No, we and everything else within creation have all been infected and we are all yearning for something to be fixed. But God puts the responsibility on us to care about it. He puts the responsibility on us. Why is creation groaning for, for this reconciliation? Because our sin has damaged it. Now, I get it, Pete. We can often just be like, well, okay, that's just more of a, an, an ethereal, abstract view of sin. On some level, something about our sin nature has affected creation. And that's true, but we rarely want to talk about what it is specifically that has occurred. And that's why we can overlook hugely damaging things that are happening in our environment now, because we think it's just an abstract issue. We talk about that often, even with our own sin. A lot of times we think, you know, the, the real issue is just my sin nature itself. And that is just such a problem. And it is, but we leave it at that abstract level. You realize that would never work when we're talking about really egregious offenses in relationships. It shouldn't work that way. If somebody commits infidelity in marriage, the response can't be, I just, man, my, my heart is just, I just got a sin nature issue. That's the problem. I mean, that's true. But in order to reconcile, we have to talk about whatever the egregious sin was with specificity because specific sins require specific repentance. Specific issues re require a specific response. And so if we're going to be about creation care, then we have to look at whatever specific things have occurred 
that have led to creation even groaning even further. And then we know exactly what the specific response, or we may get closer to what the specific response should be. This is ultimately what we need to be thinking through. In Romans here, Paul is writing that all of creation suffers, both humans as well as other creatures. And all of creation is awaiting the redemption, this, this redemption that Jesus brings. The redemption that the children of God, those who follow God, should be a part of, should be praying for, should be working for. And he also shows that the suffering that creation is enduring, it comes from human rebellion. It comes from us, the ways that we have rebelled against the law of God. What law have we rebelled against? Well, we certainly have rebelled against the law, the requirement that says, Work this ground as a form of worship, as a form of service, and protect it and guard it. And you're not just guarding it for yourself, and you're not just guarding it for those that look like you. You're guarding it because it belongs to God. We've rebelled against that, and we can walk through tons of ways that humankind has rebelled against that. But nonetheless, because of that rebellion, creation has been destroyed in many ways. God created this luxuriant, productive garden, no weeds in a place of complete health and complete life. And what does sin bring? Sin brings in sickness, death, thorns, and thistles. We work hard to make a living because this nourishing earth has been cursed. That's, where this, that's what the curse did. It made work hard. We were always supposed to work, but now it's hard. Now it's laborious. Now it's cumbersome. Now it causes pain. Now it causes injury. Now it causes bloodshed. Now, the, the working the land and protecting the land is something we do in order to just protect ourselves from other people who want the land. As if we all are fighting over who gets the title deed to the land. When God says, I'm the one that owns the land. I'm the one that has the right of possession to the land. I'm the one that has the right of usage to the land. And I give it to you. I give you, I loan to you. I give it to you as something to watch over for me as a caretaker. But you have taken it to mean it's yours. You realize that over the span of roughly two centuries, going back to the industrial age, human beings have called into question the basic foundations of life. Creation is suffering and groaning and labor pains, according to scripture, as a result of human sin. As a result of human activity, the destruction of natural spaces and this almost unchecked, unfettered urbanization, the extinction of whole species, deterioration of soil, transformation of natural resources, waste and dangerous products, pollution on a grand scale, the alteration of the very planet's equilibrium, human and cultural deterioration. Issues facing climate, all the different debates we have, we can ultimately say that climate has certainly changed. Climate has certainly been impacted very negatively in so many ways. The lack of sanitation because of all of the work that we've done in, in some areas. Now, all of a sudden, you've got places where sanitation is such a huge problem that you're having huge levels of toxicity in certain areas, especially in developing countries and in large cities. 
I'm from Michigan, from Detroit. Our neighbors, Flint, have been dealing with poisoned water for so long. Some of the issues that have happened because of industrialization, and people have often th- said, well, it's progress, it's just the price of progress, or we put blame on other people instead of thinking about some of the systems and the levers of power that have failed because they stopped being a gardener and a guardian, and they start being self-focused on progress. That's not what a gardener and a guardian looks like. You realize that when you, when you start thinking about creation as gods and you think about your role as a gardener and a guardian, you can't possibly stand by and watch injustice happen because a guardian and a gardener would immediately want to root that out. If we act according to the biblical teaching on this subject, we live happily and we offer a radiant future, a, a, a signpost of what's coming. So we give pictures, we give foreshadowing. Hey, the, the garden isn't looking right here. Let's go fix this here. Let's go make sure that we, we work this in such a way where real flourishing happens, where we don't abuse and we don't uh, act like creation is ours, but we also care about how it affects all of creation. We care how it affects our neighbors. We care how it affects humans. We care how it affects other creatures as well. Now, you might say, okay, well, all of this is good, but what, how does this really benefit? Because that's a big thing. People come, we often think about that. We put more of our efforts into things that we think there's a return on, on an investment. It's a sad truth, but it is. But let me, let me give you a few things here. Number one, One of the things that we need to do, the things that happen when we get a higher view of creation care, of environmental stewardship, of that cultural mandate, we begin to get rid of the ignorance that we may have in the face of our responsibility when it comes to protecting creation. The more we are in, this is what this means, the more that we are informed on the damage and the destruction inflicted on God's earth, the more obligated we are to revisit our responsibility as managers and as administrators of our planet and its inhabitants. You do realize that probably for a lot of us, the reason why we don't want to have this conversation is because it's like anything else. When we talk about race, or we talk about misogyny, or we talk about anything else, whenever we have to talk about real issues of injustice in all of its forms, There is a reticence that we have deep down because we know it's going to make us have to reevaluate habits, ways that we think, things that we worship, things that we hold on to, things that we love. It means we might be forced to give up something. It means we may have to let go of something. Y'all, at the end of the day, we don't want to talk about this because abusing creation for our own good, for our own benefit, has been an idol that we've had from the beginning. No one willingly lets go of an idol. That's just not who we are, sadly, because of sin. It takes something to remind us, to confront us, to challenge us, to convict us, to call us out and say, hey, that doesn't actually match God's heart. And so when we begin to get into real creation care, we get rid of that ignorance, that selective ignorance or that voluntary ignorance. And we begin to think, let me get back to my responsibility. Let me get back to what it is that I've been called to, what I've been called to work in, what I've been called to guard. Let me get back to remembering that God is the creator of the entire universe, that God's universe bears eloquent testimony. The heavens declare the glories of God, Psalm 119, or Psalm 19, that all creation belongs to God, Deuteronomy 10. 
that God loves creation and takes care of it and gives water and nourishment to all his creatures, Psalm 104. And even as God gave Christ Jesus, John 3, 16, we see that. He gave that, gave Jesus for us because he loves us. We are assured that the Lord blesses and keeps us. And in the same way that he blesses us and keeps us, we are called to bless and to keep. That's, that's our job. The second thing that we see as a benefit is that ultimately when we start engaging in this, we'll realize the ways in which we need to have a true sabbatical rest, which means time to reestablish and enjoy the fruits of God's creation. There's a way in which we can just truly, I, listen, I'm not, I've never been a huge nature person. Uh, I've got, you know, family that are, but I've never been, I've never been a huge outdoorsman kind of person, but I'm really starting to even grow and be moved in the fact that whether I naturally have a propensity to just want to sit and stare out at leaves and trees and all of that, I'm starting to get to a place where I'm realizing just the joy, the comfort, the time to just stop and reflect. And it, ne it should never get old. Wow. God made this. This is something that exists outside of me. This is something I didn't make. This is something I didn't do. This is something that doesn't belong to me. And I'm overwhelmed with its beauty, with its provision, in ways that creation even functions to protect us in ways. This should, that should be a part of just sabbatical rest. Yes, we work it and we bring things from it and all these wonderful things happen, but there's a time where we just step back and rest and be reminded that in the same way that God provides for the needs of his creatures, we must also do the same by permitting the rest of creation to just be productive and to multiply. This is, this is a beautiful piece we can just stop and reflect in. This also means that we actively participate in efforts that stop the rapid deterioration of creation that threatens the world. The consequences of this deterioration are so dramatic for humans as well as other species. We should care about that. When we hear about a horrible oil spill that kills all types of wildlife, that snuffs out the lives of uh, aquatic creatures, when we hear about uh, tons and tons of plastic objects that are dumped in the ocean and you find out about animals that are suffocating because of it. That should actually move us. I'm not saying that the answers are always easy, but we can't just check out and go, oh, that's really rough, and then keep it moving. We should feel the thing. We should try to figure out what does it look like? What efforts can we be a part of? I know we can't solve every problem, but don't let that be an excuse to ignore every problem. We need to, to be at a place where our heart can be moved. And here's the final reason why we should genuinely care about creational, creation stewardship, environmental stewardship, creation care. This reason is that one day, all of creation, the heavens and the earth, will be renewed and be recreated as the new heavens and the new earth. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament looks forward to this. That time where, where that new heaven and new earth is going to bring and restore the fullness of life that God intended and that God purposed for creation. A place where people and all creatures will be truly at home. God will dwell with God's people and they and all of creation will worship him, live in harmony and give him glory. That's what we say we believe. That's what we say we're longing for. 
And again, we bring this up often. If Jesus says, hey, when y'all pray, you better pray, Lord, your kingdom. I want your kingdom to come and I want your will to be done on this earth in the same way it exists in heaven. In other words, the same way that the kingdom that's coming that we keep preaching about, that we believe this harmony that's there, we wanna see that encroaching into the kingdom now. And if I'm praying that way, then everywhere I look where the kingdom doesn't look like this, I mourn it, I acknowledge it, I call it out and I work to mitigate it. I work to end it if it's possible on this side of creation. And I long for full reconciliation. I long for that time where all of that fullness is here. In other words, we should treat the environment now as a preview of the environment that's coming. A practice run, if you want to call it that. A, a foreshadowing, a trailer of coming attractions. This idea, what we, we are doing now, we should function now the way we see, we expect to be functioning in the new creation. This hope of a renewed future creation. It's not licensed to, I think a lot of people have, again, that's that whole, it'll all be remade, it'll all burn up. That's not licensed to abandon care here. We'd have to excise that whole portion of the Lord's prayer then. But that's not what this is. This is, yes, we acknowledge, it's not gonna all be perfect on this side. Sin is still here. Sickness is still here. The infection of, of sin into all of creation. Creation's groaning. Cre creation's waiting to be restored. We get it. We're not going to fully do it, but we should be giving a foretaste of it. It's not an excuse to abandon care for this world. Instead, it's the opposite. Instead, uh, there is every incentive to foster and use this innate goodness and fruitfulness of this material world to do what is pleasing to God, to do what is pleasing in our time and in our place. One of the things that, uh, a quote that has often been attributed to Martin Luther, we're not sure uh, if he actually said this, but it's a quote that I think nonetheless is very, very true. Someone asked and said, uh, if, if Jesus were to return tomorrow, what would you do? And he's alleged to have responded, if I knew Jesus would return tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. Now, this isn't just to call it a plant more trees, although I think that is really good. What he ultimately is saying is, if I know that God is on a mission to restore all things, to reconcile all things, and I know that he's going to restore relationship between us and God, and I know he's going to restore relationship between me and other image bearers, I also know that he's going to restore our relationship to creation. And I know that in the new heavens and new earth, we will have a right relationship with creation. So what is it then that stops us from doing it now? This should be what moves us. This should be what gets us to a place where we long for genuine reconciliation, where we long for what it is God promises to do, to restore to reconcile all three relationships. Yes, we need right relationship with God. Yes, we need right relationship with each other. And yes, we are called into right relationship with creation. And this is what he comes to do. So again, does God care about the environment? Yes. And he cared about the environment long before there were activists. He cared about the environment long before there were marches and protests. 
He cared about the environment long before there were other horrific events that, that have happened. Long before the Exxon Valdez oil spill, long before uh, horrific effect, uh, impacts have affected people in Russia after the Chernobyl uh, debacle, long before the issues that have affected uh, citizens of Flint have been just completely disastrous with their water supply, long before all of that, God has always cared about the environment because it's His. Creation is His, and He has entrusted us to care about it the way He does to work it the way he did and to protect it the way he did. So may we be a people that is moved by his heart, not by our agendas, not behind, be, be, not by certain political platforms. We don't need that. We need God's heart. We need God's spirit. We need his truth. So may we be moved in such a way to say, I want to steward every aspect of all of creation, not just stewarding my life, but stewarding the very creation that God used to give me life because he's coming to reconcile that too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a holistic God. You care about it all. You don't just care about our souls. You don't just care about even our bodies. You care about both of those things, but you care about creation. You used it all to create it all. You used uh, creation. You used the very things in the earth to breathe life into us and to all of the living creatures on your earth. And so, God, we pray that you would give us a deep respect, reverence, appreciation, and adoration for what it is you've created. Not just because we appreciate it and not just because we see its beauty, but also because it's yours. We don't own it. Lord, convict us from all the ways, in all the ways that we have acted as if it is ours. And so we are therefore, we therefore have license to do whatever it is we want to do for our own benefit. God, convict us for all the ways that that way of thinking has led to us ignoring obscene forms of injustices to those who don't have any access to the levers of power that would, or the levels of access to those things. God, I pray that we would, even as we look through history, that we would tell the truth about our own history in which we have seen land as something that must be sovereignly given to certain people groups based on whatever criteria we have created, whether it's theological camps, whether it's racial camps, whether it's gender-based camps. Lord, we have, we have such a history that shows we have had a sinful way of looking at your stuff and then we have com committed, frankly, we have committed cosmic theft by claiming it as our own and functioning as if we, it belongs to us. And then we look at all the others that we can exclude and harm in order to take what we believe is ours. Lord, I pray that you convict us from the very sinful, idolatrous ways of thinking that, that is rooted in ideas like manifest destiny and divine right. Lord, let us see that this really is one of the first forms of the so-called prosperity gospel. And I pray that you would break us of that. Give us a deep jealousy for your glory, not just in our lives, but in all of creation, because you are coming to redeem and buy it all back for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's receive the benediction of God, the great creator the one who owns it all, 
the one who has not only created us and entrusted it to us, but after we lost it all, after he created it all, we lost it all. And then he buys it back and promises to give it all and restore it all. Listen to his final blessing to us. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And may all of God's people say, Amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.